Good evening. Welcome to another show of facts on Monday. Uh, a little bit different uh, field tonight because we actually threw a curveball at you and we changed subjects, but we'll come back to it. Uh, the wonderful thing about hosting shows like this is you get to pick your subjects, uh, but you're really not bound to it either. You can change things up. Uh, in fact, this week I had an interesting discussion with my friend John Beasley, and he was talking about uh, a section. We had a conversation about a section in a debate I did not too long ago uh, going over the historicity of Jesus. I debated uh, whether Jesus was a real historical figure or not, and he said, you should do a short clip and put that out on Facebook to take people to the debate. And the more I thought about that, I didn't care for the debate because it was probably one of the most unhistorical arguments I've ever heard. Uh, and I'm not saying that to be unkind. It was just beating your head against a wall. History didn't matter. Facts didn't matter. Um, everything was disregarded. The intro that I gave was disregarded. So what I did is uh, I took some of my notes from that debate and I'm bringing them to you tonight. And I'm going to actually bring my intro and dissect it more. The thing about debates is, and the more I do them, the more I despise them. Um, there are very few debates I've done that I've actually enjoyed. Now, many discussions I've done, I've really enjoyed, uh, whether that's discussions with Richard Carrier, or Robert Price, uh, looking at the different theological arguments that are out there, having a discussion with the moderator is much more enjoyable to me. But on the other hand, I understand the necessity for it sometimes and the structure for it as well. So having these discussions, I've enjoyed researching numerous topics like what we're going to be talking about in a minute. But what has been shocking to me is how many intelligent people truly believe Jesus did not exist or have a high probability that he did not exist. And one of the things I did is I, I, I pondered on this question for months. Really, I, I did. Why is it the guys with their PhDs from Ivy League schools are having a discussion about Jesus having a two-thirds chance of not being real and that he was a myth and made up to the point where even liberal professors that we would not agree with in Orthodox Christianity like Bart Ehrman will even take these guys to task and even debate them and say, no, Jesus was a real historical figure. Now, Dr. Ehrman does not believe Jesus was the son of God resurrected from the dead. He believes he was a true historical man who was killed, crucified, and his body was probably dumped in a pit somewhere. But he does not believe in Jesus the way we would, but he certainly does not deny the fact that Jesus was a first century man. But there is a teaching out there. And the more I pondered this, I came across a study that I found unique. Um, when I was going through the studies of Xenophon, I remember him saying something about Socrates. I was like, oh, I'm going to go backtrack that and see where that's written. And it dawned on me that Socrates had never written anything. And so I started doing some research. I got onto a, a little side trail, little rabbit trail for a while. And I started doing research on Socrates. And I looked at some of the comparisons of Socrates and I went, wow, there's a lot of similarities between his historical figure and Jesus. I'm not talking about their teachings. I'm not talking about their theologies. I'm talking about them as historical characters, their presentations, their renown in their locations, their followers, the writings about them. All of those things comparable were close. 
And so I did this investigation, brought it into the debate, uh, and I actually presented the fact that if we follow the historical criteria for the person of, of Socrates and conclude that he is genuine, apply the same rules to the person of Jesus of Nazareth and conclude that he was a myth, then we have faulty and we really have a prejudice or a bias system that is meant to exclude one character in history and maintain the other. Because when we apply the same rules for Socrates that we do for Jesus, we find that Jesus had far more evidence, earlier attestation in the manuscript traditions than anything Socrates ever produced. So what I'm going to do this evening is I'm going to bring on slides. And again, for those who are listening in through audio, whether it be Spotify or an Apple or other venues, I will read this for you as slowly as I can. Uh, I will bring it up on the screen and read it. And what we're going to do is we're going to do this. We're going to put it to a test. We're going to apply the same principles for the historical figure Socrates, a great, really Greek philosopher who started and really started a trend that went down into Plato and Xenophon uh, and others that passed down into the ages that people still read about to this day. And we're going to apply the principles of historical tracing. How do we trace the existence of historical figures? It really comes down to two things. I mean, you can add to this list and subcategory them. You can add other criteria, but the main things that you want to see when you're doing a historical character search is an eyewitness report or preferably eyewitnesses reporting something or, and I should say in addition to, archived records that are in written texts. Not only do you want to have eyewitnesses who carry on a tradition, but in addition to that tradition, you want to see written texts that are validating or disregarding an individual. Now, what must be noted is I have not met anybody, that doesn't mean they're not out there, who denies the existence of Socrates. In fact, oddly enough in the debate, when I applied these principles for Jesus and Socrates, my opponent had no problem quickly saying to me, I'm fine if Socrates didn't exist. Now, most people that are historians would never make that kind of a claim, but again, that was the type of debate that it was. But looking at the criteria, most people would not deny Socrates. In fact, most people in academia do not follow the idea that Jesus of Nazareth did not exist. Now, most do not accept him as the son of God risen from the dead, but they do not deny his existence as an individual. But that is a growing trend, particularly in the atheistic community. Not so much in the academic, although the academics are setting this standard and being published for it, like Dr. Richard Carrier, who have I, honestly, I, I've done a couple of discussions with him now on live streams, and I've enjoyed my dialogue with him, whether it was about Daniel. Uh, we didn't get much into the historicity. He and I are supposed to be doing something on the Gospel of Luke next year. Uh, and I've had uh, dialogue with Robert Price, Dr. Price, and mostly that was on the Gnostic text. That was the Gospel of Peter and Thomas, but we did not get into the historicity of Jesus as much. But these guys are really have, in, in a big way, popularized this teaching of Jesus being a myth. But what we want to take today 
is really just examine simple principles and see if there's bias. Because I truly believe if we apply the same principles and we accept one and not the other, we are being inconsistent with the evidence. Inconsistent. And quite frankly, excusing things and doing away with them because we don't like them. So let's look at the eyewitness reports and the archived written text that cover the two people. Let's start with Socrates if we can. Were there eyewitness reports of a human being by the name of Socrates? Sure. The most popular that you may know by name is Plato. Now, Plato was a student of Socrates, and he wrote extensively on the individual, the person himself, and what he said and what he taught and his different philosophies that he brought to the table. And Plato was the greatest, if you would, probably the most popular disciple of Socrates. Another one is the name of Xenophon. Now, Xenophon, uh, we do have texts that survived from him much, much later. But then again, we assume them to be at least accurate in their assessments. He was also a student and considered a good friend of Socrates. He learned from Socrates. He built off of Socrates' philosophy, and he wrote quite a bit describing the full end of what Socrates was teaching. Aristophanes was another one. Now, Aristophanes is an interesting character because he's known as the father of comedy. Um, apparently, he put on plays on a regular basis. Now, Plato ended up not liking Aristophanes because he did a, a play about Socrates called Clouds. And Plato, all the way to his death, it seems, really pinned that play against Socrates or against Aristophanes for Socrates' sake, saying this play is what got him killed. You understand, Socrates did not have a popular fan base. In fact, the people of that time in the Greco world were believing that he was corrupting the minds of the youth, that he was taking them to think wrong about the world and to think wrong about life. And so he was not very popular, though his followers were radical and, and just really bought into what he was teaching. People in the cities and the towns that heard him worried about the way he was twisting the minds of their children and their grandchildren. And so when there was a play done called Clouds that Aristophanes put on, they did not like it. And Plato accused this play of being the purpose and reason behind Socrates' martyrdom or that he was killed. But these are primary sources that you would say are eyewitnesses. These were his most notorious. He had others, but these were his most notorious disciples who talked about him, talked about him in a oral tradition, talked about him in a written tradition, which we're going to look at in a second, talked about him by doing a play about his life. I mean, that's pretty radical in of itself. Now, keep this in mind. Socrates did not write down his teachings. This is where the parallel between him and Jesus needs to be noted. There's a lot of things that are similar. Jesus was a great teacher, but did not write down any of his texts that we know of. Socrates is in the same boat. However, he had followers who sold out to his teachings just as Jesus did, and they wrote what he said and did and taught what he said and did. So that being the case, there are a lot of parallels. Both were killed. Jesus of Nazareth was killed and martyred for what he taught. Jesus and Socrates both share that same trait. They were both killed for what they believed and taught. They were not liked by people in their own town and cities. Um, 
We don't have a body for Jesus. There's no DNA testing his body. We as Christians believe by the evidence as well as the testimony of scripture that he has risen from the dead. Socrates, nobody teaches that he rose from the dead, but we do not have a body to DNA test either. We have missing links here. We also have continual traditions that are passed on from a worldview's perspective, from the Greco world and into the Jewish world of Jesus, they are similar at times in their parallels, looking at them as historical figures. Again, their philosophy and theology are night and day, but when we're talking about them as historical figures, there's a lot of similarities. So keep in mind, Socrates did not write any of his teachings down. And due to this dilemma, we have to rely on eyewitness accounts and written records of Socrates just as we do the life and ministry of Jesus. So let's talk about these written texts. We talked about Plato and Xenophon, but they really are the primary writers. Aristophanes, again, he was more of a secondary because he didn't write about it as much as do plays about it, but he was giving evidence of the life of Socrates from that viewpoint, which is still an eyewitness testimony. Now, here's the interesting thing. Uh, the Testaments of Antisthenes are this. Now, Antisthenes is another interesting character and follower because he became a radical follower. I would say uh, that he became more radical than even guys like Plato at times. He would walk miles and miles in a day to just go hear Socrates teach. He was obsessed with Socrates. Now, there's testaments of him as well. He wrote of Socrates. He wrote about Socrates because he was there. He heard him. He talked about him from an eyewitness standpoint. So we have to take him into consideration to the point where he searched far and wide to go hear Socrates teach. Aristippus is another one, but this one is going to be paralleled with other followers of Jesus that we'll talk about when we get to him. But Aristippus is a person who left the teachings of Socrates. Though he was a disciple of Socrates, he wandered away from the principal teachings and philosophies that he was given. And he became a great teacher of his own and brought his own family into his way of thinking and taught others to do the same. But he was testifying for the fact that there was a true historical man named Socrates because he opposed his teaching and said, you know what? I learned from him. And the more I thought about it, it was wrong. He spent most of his life correcting the philosophical understanding that Socrates taught, but he acknowledged Socrates existence. Those are primary eyewitness testimonies. Now there's second generation records as well. Aristotle, perhaps you've heard of him. Notice the words of Aristotle here. Socrates, however, was busying himself about ethical matters and neglecting the world of nature as a whole. Now, this is a disciple of a disciple. So Socrates was one who learned uh, or one who taught Plato, Plato and others down to Aristotle. Aristotle was the second generation. So he didn't know him personally, more than likely, but he learned from those who did learn from him. We're going to see the parallels of that in a minute. And this is what he said. Socrates was busying himself about ethical matters and neglecting the world of nature as a whole. But seeking the universal in these ethical matters and fixed thought for the first time on definitions, Plato accepted his teachings. 
but held that the problem applied not to the sensible things, but to the entities of another kind. And this is what Aristotle is basically saying. Plato took Socrates' philosophy and did better with it. It's not that Aristotle necessarily neglected or said he didn't like Socrates. It's that he believed that Socrates didn't take his teachings further than they could have gone, but rather Plato picked up the teachings of Socrates and made them better. That's literally what he's saying here. So Aristotle, once again, being a disciple of a disciple of Socrates, acknowledged the historicity and teachings and the things that he said to the point where he believed his teacher, his one that he's learning under being Plato, did better than Socrates. Now, let's talk about a historian who came later, around 108 AD, by the name of Arian of Nic uh, Nicomedia. Now, Arian studied under Epictetus. Now, Epictetus had a great value of Socrates' teachings. Arian didn't use Socrates' name a ton in his writings, but he did see himself as similar, or his goal was to have a certain type of literature that conveyed a certain type of truth that was comparable to Socrates. And he claimed to have written his famous discourses based on the notes he took on Epictetus's literature. So he wrote a bunch of discourses from what he learned of his teacher, but his teacher was fascinated with Socrates. And Arian argued that his discourses should be considered comparable to Socrates' literature, which is pretty incredible. Now, keep this in mind about Arian. Arian was a tremendous historian, but he had a habit of studying history. How did he do it? Well, this is how he did it. He would want to get records to the closest eyewitness accounts he could find. And we see this true in his research of Ptolemy when he deals with Alexander the Great. He wants to get as close to the eyewitnesses as possible. He would search the archives. He would go through libraries. He would spend time in his research, if they were still alive, getting as close to the eyewitnesses as possible. And if the eyewitnesses were dead, he went to the archives and found the written text. So we today are applying those same principles to Socrates and Jesus of Nazareth. And we just followed this pattern by looking at the eyewitnesses and the text that they wrote. So Arian, being the historian, saw himself and his way of doing discourses comparable to Socrates' literature, used Socrates' teachings and acknowledged Socrates' teachings, but followed it from a historical perspective. He had criteria, he had a way and methodology of research, and he utilized it to come to a conclusion about history. And we're going to see another guy who was comparable to using the same methodology for Jesus of Nazareth. So to me, there's no dispute. There truly was a man named Socrates, though we don't have a body, though we don't have any kind of written text from him, though we do not have a visual, a picture of him. We do have his followers who recorded his teachings, who recorded his life and even did plays about his life. We have people that acknowledge him so much that they ended up despising him and leaving his teachings and combating his teachings the rest of their life, which is pretty incredible. We see secondhand generation records coming in with Aristotle, Arian doing research, comparing his work to the Socrates style of literature. And we see this study is consistent. And there is absolutely no reason historically to deny that this man existed. Now, what's amazing is, is Xenophon is one of the earliest attested manuscripts we have of 
his writings and specifically in his records of Socrates. Now think about this for a minute before we jump into Jesus of Nazareth. Xenophon wrote right during the times of Socrates, the closest manuscript we have to that time that he wrote is almost 1200 years later, 1200. When we're talking about the life and ministry of Jesus, we have manuscripts of his life and ministry within 150 years of his existence. And the accusations that come against Jesus and against the text of scripture is that they are copies of copies of copies of copies of copies. And we do not know what they uh, originally said. We have error-ridden copies that came down. And if that is the case, and if that is how we do criteria, then we have no clue anything that Xenophon said being true, because what do you do with a 1,200-year gap? Much more can be corrupted. Much more can be changed in 1,200 years than 150. And in the case of John's gospel, we have manuscripts that are in the middle to late second century. And we believe, or I should say, I believe that John's gospel was written between 80 and 90 AD. And if that is the case, when we have fragments like, uh, you know, P66 and P75, P52, the oldest manuscript, mid-second century, possibly even early, but I wouldn't put it there. I'd put it later, probably mid-second century. Recording words from the Gospel of John, all at the end of the second, mid and end of second century. We can't do that with anything recorded about Socrates. Xenophon's writings are 1,200 years later at best. And this is something that should be noted. So let's talk about Jesus of Nazareth. Let's talk about the eyewitness reports of him. Now, we can use the criteria because this is exactly what Paul the Apostle did in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 when he was particularly talking about the eyewitness testimony of the resurrection. Now, we're not going to get into the resurrection as much as the historical figure, but we'll use Paul's methodology. He went down a line. He said that Jesus was seen, the resurrected Jesus was seen, by the twelve. Now, he also mentions an additional person, James the Just which would be the brother of Jesus, which is interesting that he picked that name there because we don't have any record of this instance. Now, we do know, as if you've been paying attention to previous podcasts, when we got to uh, Matthew's gospel, the Hebrew version or the Aramaic version of Matthew's gospel, if you remember carefully, Jerome records statements that he got from a manuscript in Caesarea that he translated from the Hebrew version. And the story that he produced was Jesus in a post-resurrection form appearing to his brother James. So Paul, around the time of 50 AD, writing 1 Corinthians, had apparently agreed with the eyewitness testimony report that was in this Hebrew version of Matthew, stating that James the just did have an encounter with his brother Jesus. <clears throat> Paul had no problem adding 1 Corinthians 15 in there, this eyewitness report. And then Paul includes himself, obviously the 12, <clears throat> particularly he mentioned Peter and, uh, and then he mentioned the 12, but James adjusts. And then he brings in himself. <laughs> Naturally, he was not opposing a group of people who believed in a myth. He was not going after and imprisoning and killing people who were teaching that this figurative mythological person rose from the dead. He was hunting down and imprisoning men and women who were teaching that the physical man that his group of Sanhedrin put to death just prior to that 
that he did not stay dead, but that he actually came alive from the dead. He was not persecuting people for believing that a mythological person that his committee mythologically killed, mythologically resurrected. That's not what happened. Paul didn't deny the existence of Jesus. His his theological position against Jesus was that he was not the son of God that he claimed to be until he had a physical encounter with the resurrected Jesus on the road of Damascus. And then he mentions over 500 witnesses that he said, many of the which are still alive to this day. Now that's an important thing to note at that time. He was telling the Corinthians who I think he wrote probably at the end uh, or he wrote first and second Corinthians. Again, there's probably about four, maybe more letters to the Corinthians. We have two that were under inspiration, but he probably wrote to them between 50 and 60 AD. I believe wrote second Corinthians right around the time of the turn of 50 to 60 or 58 to 60, excuse me. And he's writing to them in the first letter about recognizing many of the eyewitnesses that saw the resurrected Jesus were still alive. That, And he was doing it in defense way. The way he wrote 1 Corinthians 15 is almost a courtroom setting. I have to make a defense of my position of the resurrection. And he did so using this criteria. And in the 500, what he's basically saying to his reader is, if you don't believe me, you can still find eyewitnesses of over 500 who saw him before he ascended into heaven. Go ask them yourselves. That's literally what he's doing. It's a challenge. If you don't believe my report, you don't believe the 12, you don't believe James, go ask the other almost 500 people who many of them are still alive, go ask them. He would not have put out that kind of really a statement if he didn't believe that people could take his records and his eyewitness testimony and test it against the eyewitness testimony of others. He was allowing people to critique and validate his claims even outside of himself and the group known as the apostles. So there's no conspiracy here. That's what Paul is doing. But let's talk about the archived records. So we see that you're looking at early eyewitness testimonies. You had his followers. You had Peter, James, John, the others. You had James the Just, Paul himself. You had over 500 witnesses who not only examined him in his life, but his resurrection after death. But they also wrote, just as we saw Xenophon, and just as we saw Plato, they wrote about these teachings. Now, whether somebody believes Matthew wrote his gospel or not, and if you missed that video, there's two of them, please go back and listen to my argument as to why I believe he did, or at least had the basic underlying data for the Greek version of Matthew. Whether you believe he wrote it or not, he is recording firsthand records of Jesus. And again, the earliest testimony of this can be brought back to Papias. He recorded his life. He recorded his ministry, his teachings, his resurrection. And Papias went so as far to say that Matthew collected these sayings of Jesus in Hebrew and that other ended up translating it later, which again, if you missed that, go back and watch those videos. So we have a firsthand disciple writing on behalf of Jesus, just as we saw with Plato and Xenophon. We had another one, John. John included himself in his gospel narrative and identified himself as the writer at the very end. And we talked about that as well. If you missed those two episodes of John, go back and watch those on the Inclusio Eyewitness Testimony of John with his own gospel. And he is writing from an eyewitness standpoint. He goes so far as to say in his epistle, 1 John, that he had touched 
and seen the physical Jesus himself. He had physically touched and seen with his eyes and felt with his hands the word of life. He is telling you that he was a living being, physical human. God in the flesh is as far as that he went in John 1 as well as in 1 John. He claimed, if you believe that Jesus Christ did not come to the flesh, you're not of God, you're of the Antichrist. So he was defending the physicality of a person named Jesus against a teaching called Gnosticism, which we're looking at these Gnostic Gospels moving forward, that believe that some being landed on Jesus at the baptism abandoned him on the cross. But he also included the words, we have touched, indicating he was not an independent source. He said, we have touched, recognizing that he was amongst a group who was a part of this experience. Now, Paul, again, he at times quotes the teachings of Jesus, but not as much the teachings of Jesus as much as the impact of the life of Jesus in his epistles. He does quote Jesus's words. He does it in 1 Corinthians. Um, he quotes Jesus uh, writing 1 Timothy chapter 5. But again, he takes the teachings and principles of Jesus and brings them more into an application. So here's the gospel. This is what it means for you. This is the application of the gospel. But Paul, as an eyewitness, wrote records of a living, existing Jesus. And most people have no problem with Paul. They just believe that Paul had hallucinations and Paul you know, had a little too many pepperonis on his pizza before he went to bed that night. That's, that's what they think about Paul, that he didn't have a physical encounter. He had visions and hallucinations. Now, that's the primary records. That's the eyewitness records. There are also many secondary generation records, those that learn from those who saw Jesus. Just as we saw Aristotle and others learn from Plato and Xenophon of Socrates, we also have individuals who did not know Jesus personally, but learned of him from those who did. Obviously, we're going to start with Mark. Mark wrote on behalf of Peter, an eyewitness report from Peter's sermons in Rome. Now, as we stated in those videos as well, again, if you missed them, go back. Papias of Hierapolis claimed that Mark wrote his gospel in Rome as he scribed the preachings of Peter, the teachings and preaching of Peter. Irenaeus also claimed Mark penned his gospel and scribe of Peter. Others, again, Tertullian, Eusebius, Justin Martyr, Clement, Origen, all attributed Mark's gospel to Peter. So Mark did record the testimonies of Jesus from the eyewitness testimony of Peter, which we also saw the inclusio eyewitness testimony there as well. Luke, probably the most dominant of the historians on a secondhand account, but writing on behalf of Paul, as we talked about, again, if you missed that, go back and watch the two on Luke. He's a historian. He's writing from a histori uh, really a huge aspect of the life and ministry of Jesus all the way to the impact of the ministry of Paul through the book of Acts. And as a historian, he gave two written accounts, Luke and Acts, of Christ and his eyewitnesses, particularly Peter, John, and later Paul, but continued on with others that were in the narrative as well, like, like Philip. And in this, he claims that he is consistent in his writings where he gives his prologue and in his records that he had searched out through the eyewitnesses were consistent with the other teachings of the eyewitnesses, such as Matthew, Mark, and later John. But his testimonies that he received from the eyewitnesses were consistent 
and that he had done the research as a historian to write an account on their behalf. And he continued this trend all the way through the book of Acts, even with guys like Philip, who he met later and spent time with him in Caesarea in his home with his four daughters, where he learned stories about him in the Ethiopian eunuch in Acts. So these are incredible things. These are secondary generation records that were given on behalf of the eyewitnesses, just as we've seen with Socrates. But there's more. There's more than just that. There's the Didache, which, again, we spent a lot of time on when it came to Matthew and how often he quoted Matthew. But we also looked at the Didache when we talked about Nicaea. You have Polycarp, who was a disciple of John. Clement of Rome was a disciple of Peter and of Paul. We see records of that in 1 Clement. Ignatius was very interested in following the teachings of Paul, was also an apostolic man. Papias, who was a hearer of John, and he learned from other eyewitnesses that followed Jesus, like Aristion, John the Elder, and the daughters of Philip, and Philip himself. And Papias talked about how he wanted to hear from the living and abiding voices, those voices of the eyewitness testimonies who were still alive in his day at the end of the century, at the end of the first century. These are all used as common records and written sources to identify the teachings of Jesus and his historical works, as we see in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. These documents were their home base of record, even during the time of the apostles, while the apostles were still living, where did they go for records? What was the accounts that they went to, to identify, validate, and commission others with the teachings of Jesus, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. If you missed that from the last few weeks, go back and listen to the episode on Nicaea, go back and look at the fact that these writers were all quoting the four gospels that we have today. That was their record. That was their source because they knew it was based on eyewitness testimonies and they used that to expound onto the teachings to their churches and to their generation as second generation speakers and writers. And just like Aristippus, who deviated away from Socrates and spent the rest of his time betraying the teachings and, and going into a nuanced teaching of Socrates, this too happened with Jesus. Now, this is known as Gnosticism. And there's other sects that fell off as well. But early on, you see Cerinthian causing major havoc for John the Apostle while he was alive. But there's also another group, like the Nicenes, who claimed to be a branch of the teachings that trace to James the Just. And that's recorded by Hippolytus of Rome. The epistle of Peter to Philip identifies a physical body of Jesus that was inhabited. So again, just as you see with Aristippus, you see Gnostic teachings come out deviating from the original teachings of Jesus. But here's what they didn't do. Even though they deviated from the purity of the message recorded by the eyewitnesses, they deviated because they didn't agree with things or they were misled with things. But one thing they all had in common is they did not deny the existence of a historical Jesus. And this is true in other traditions of of belief. The Muslims do not deny the existence of Jesus. They deny that he was God in the flesh. They believe he was a prophet, but they don't deny his existence. To me, it's unnecessary. There's so many sources that follow the trend of 
original eyewitnesses, the records that came after. Now, let's look at non-Christian sources, lest we be accused of bias beliefs. Hegesepsis wrote about this. He mentions that Domitian, which is at the end, which is very likely the very person who put John on the island of Patmos for the writing of the apocalypse and where that took place, it would have been Domitian who did that. Now, Hegesepsis wrote that Domitian interviewed or was attempting to interview the family of Jesus, specifically his distant relatives. We don't know why. We don't know of all the reasons and the values as to why he did, but he was interested in the relatives of Jesus. Now that's, that's unique. Why would a, a ruler of the Roman government want to go and interview family members of a mythological being? Josephus, who is often criticized, and there are certain sections of his writings that are disputed. So what I did is instead of bringing all his quotes, I brought one that was not disputed. This is what Josephus said. Festus was now dead, and Albinus was but upon the road. So he assembled the Sanhedrin of judges and brought before them the brother of Jesus, who was called Christ, whose name was James and some others, or some of his companions. And when he had formed an accusation against them as breakers of the law, he delivered them to be stoned. And this is Josephus in a section that is not disputed. And the argument that is given any time Josephus has an undisputed section, it's like, well, that's an interpolation. This is added. This was a later edition. This is something that came after. This is not original Josephus. This is somebody corrupting Josephus. Mm. The thing is, is we have to have reason other than, I don't like that, that disproves my point, to disprove that this is disputed. Now, there are other sections that are disputed, and rightfully so. And that's true in most writings, where the manuscripts are much, much later. This section is actually not disputed. Tacitus is another one who is disputed. Now, understand something. Tacitus was a man who had records of the Roman Senate. He mentions this on numerous occasions. But this is what Tacitus had to say about the historical Jesus. He says, Consequently, to get rid of the report, Nero fastened the guilt and inflicted the most inquisitive tortures. Now, he recognized Nero's craziness on a class hated for their abominations called Christians by the populace. Christus, which we assume he's referring to as Christ, for whom the name had its origin, suffered under the extreme penalty during the reign of Tiberius at the hands of one of our... Now listen, before I keep reading this, do not miss the pronoun. Don't miss it. At the hands of one of our leaders, Pontius Pilate, and the most mischievous superstition, thus checked for a moment, again, broke out not only in Judea, in the first source of the evil, but even in Rome, where all his all these things, hideous and shameful from every part of the world, find their center and become popular. So this is what this is what Tacitus is recognizing. That Christianity is following a guy named Christ who had suffered the extreme penalty, which is crucifixion, during the time of Tiberius by the hands of Pontius Pilate. 
Now, the answer that I have received from this quotation of Tacitus, well, we don't know if that is Tacitus. That could be added. And if it is Tacitus, he he was probably just reporting Jewish or Christian rumors about somebody they follow. So he's not recording this because he actually knows this. He's recording this because this is what the community of Christians are saying happened. Let's back up. Let's go back to the section I just read to you. Tacitus had records of the Roman Senate. He mentions this on numerous occasions. If a man was crucified during the time of Tiberius under the hands of Pontius Pilate, it would have been in the records of the Roman Senate that he would have read and known about. He didn't need Jewish gossip or Christian gossip in the community to come up with that. And what he said here is it was done by one of our. He wasn't speaking on behalf of the Christians. He was speaking on behalf as a Roman leader, a Roman record-keeping citizen who followed the Senate's details. He is writing this not from that perspective of some guy who didn't know better. He's writing this because he was a known researcher of Roman Senate records. And that's why he used the terminology that he did. I do not buy that he was just going off of Jewish runs. That is an assumption. That is a major assumption. The evidence of statement is blatantly clear to assume that he did not understand that from a historical perspective or a record perspective. And to say that he only learned that from the Jewish communities is to accept a rumor he did not mention he learned it from them. When we understand that he had records of the Roman Senate, it shouldn't surprise us that he would mention this time frame. Let's talk about another document. We'll close it up. Known as the Acts of Pilate. Now, we don't, don't confuse that with what survived that we have today called the Acts of Pilate. I do not believe them to be the same. What I'm talking about is a little bit different. According to Suetonius, Julius Caesar's first enactment after becoming the consul was that the proceedings of both the Senate and the people should day by day be compiled and published. Can I put it to you in modern terms? When Julius Caesar became the consul, any decision that was made by the Roman Senate was supposed to be put in a newspaper. Okay. Daily newspaper. New information, new decision-making by the Senate, new Roman decisions of taxation, whatever they wanted to put. There was a daily report sent out to to the people giving them information and updates. That is reported by Suetonius, and Julius Caesar was the first one to enact what is similar to what we would call a daily newspaper with information made by the leaders of Rome. Now, these acts of Pilate were confirmed by at least three sources that we know of. So understanding that decisions were made and recorded and posted for the people, there was an act of Pilate that was done, a document known as the acts of Pilate, 
and three sources confirmed and had access to this document. Because in this document, you see a historical Jesus. Maximum II forged, uh, forged memorabilia of Pilate, providing evidence to his knowledge of the acts of Pilate. Another one was Justin Martyr. Three times he makes mention of the acts which were recorded by Pontius Pilate in reference to Jesus and his execution, in reference to a historical man named Jesus. Tertullian, the lawyer, again, he's a lawyer. He understands the law. He understands records. He understands studying records. He points to the Roman records because he knows how to utilize them for confirmation of the facts about Jesus through this document of the Acts of Pilate. He said these words, all this information was reported to Tiberius the emperor at that time. He's quoting from the document, understanding that what Julius Caesar did by posting what we would call a daily newspaper for the people on behalf of the records, they were regularly distributed. And that anything that would happen to Jesus, a crucifixion of a Jewish proclaimed Messiah, would have had records of an execution, especially since Pilate gave the order. And Tertullian, being a lawyer, understood that these things were recorded so much as to say this information was reported by Tiberius at that time. So in comparison, you see Arian, the historian, around three to 400 years difference from Socrates, making reports similar to the literature of Socrates, Eusebius doing the same type of historical criteria. Let's get to the eyewitnesses. Let's report what they say. Let's get the records. Let's get the archives. Let's write all that we can. Even if I don't agree with it, let's pull it all out. That's what Eusebius did. Just like Arian, he collected data for history about three to 400 years before him. So we see wonderful connections, similar. When we're following these rules, Socrates had followers, eyewitnesses, who wrote on behalf of him because he did not write. He had secondary followers who reported of the things that they learned from those who saw him, and they continued the records and teachings of Socrates. Jesus did the same thing. Both were martyred, both were killed for what they had to say. And I want to read a letter uh, that would have been considered around the first century. The manuscript we have of it is 6th to 7th century. And in it, it's uh, Mara Bar-Serapian who wrote to his son about two of the characters we're talking about and compared them. This is why I use the comparison. This is where I wanted to follow a comparison between Jesus and Socrates. And he said this to his son. What else can we say? When the wise are forcibly dragged off by tyrants, their wisdom is captured by insults and their minds are oppressed and without defense. What advantage did the Athenians gain for murdering Socrates? Famine and plague came upon them as punishment for their crime. What advantage did the men of Samos gain by burning Pyth Pythagoras? In a moment, their land was covered with sand. What advantage did the Jews gain from executing their wise king? It was just after that their kingdom was abolished. God justly avenged these three men. But Socrates is not dead because of Plato. Neither is Pythagoras because of the statue of Juno. 
nor is the wise king, wise king because of the new law he laid down. What, what am I saying here? He's saying all of these three men that were great teachers, their martyrdoms led to the destruction of their places. And it says if he's, and he goes in order of year, starting with Socrates, because Socrates was killed, he blames the famine and the plague that came on as punishment. He does the same thing with sandstorms after Pythagoras. And then the king of the Jews, he's not mentioned by name, but most would agree he's talking about Jesus because there's no other Jew that came that was killed by his own people and had prepared and taught a new law around that time frame. if you're following his trend of time. There's nobody else that qualifies or even fits the description. After all, Jesus was called the king of the Jews by Roman proclamation. That was what was nailed over his cross. But their wise king was killed. And he says after that, their kingdom was abolished. And God avenged these three men. He's blaming the destruction of Jerusalem, it appears, which this would have been written not far after, on the fact that they killed Jesus and that God received vengeance for killing him. But even though Socrates is dead, he lives on. Why? Because somebody wrote for him, Plato, as we said. And this individual named Pythagoras, a statue, continued on his. But the wise king had a new law that he laid down, which was recorded by his eyewitnesses. So we see in this interesting perspectives, I believe, where... You look at Socrates and Jesus and you follow the records, eyewitness reports, records, following on with historians doing investigations. They both have the same qualifiers and Jesus has more than Socrates. His name spread and his visits of individuals spread further than Socrates. Socrates is predominantly done in Greece. Jesus's fame spread beyond Greece or beyond Jerusalem. And it did land into Greece and into Rome and into the East and into Alexandria, Egypt. Multiple people were following Jesus who would come to feast days, who were Jews spread out all over the world. And they met him on Passover. They met him on the Feast of Booths. That's what was going on. Records of Jesus were being distributed across the world. And no one has ever denied the historicity of Jesus until recent scholarship. There is no historical record you can go to that denies the existence of Jesus. It's not there. So when we apply principles of history to both individuals, we have every reason to believe they were both real. Now you may be watching this say, I don't believe Jesus was the son of God or he raised from the dead. That may be the case, but historically his existence is clear the evidence is clear. The records are clear. The historians are clear. Whether you're looking at Jewish writings like Josephus, Christian writings like Polycarp or Papias, or the history work of Eusebius going back to the early days of the eyewitnesses or Luke. But you can't deny the non-Christian eyewitnesses. And there's many more. We, we don't even have time to go through. The Jews wrote about him and didn't like him. There's numerous places we could go to follow the historicity of Jesus and his existence. We just don't have time in an hour program. These are highlighted reels. 
So looking at this, if we apply the principles, they're both historical figures. All right, let's jump into some of the discussions. I guess it depends on how you interpret Paul's description of Jesus. Was Jesus considered God before becoming a man or man before uh, being claimed as a God? Well, I mean, when you're talking about before his conversion, he clearly didn't believe that Jesus was God. When you read Colossians chapter one, he's very clearly proclaiming Jesus as the eternal creator of all things who sustains all things, the sovereign God of heaven. When we read Colossians one, it's pretty clear. So how did he describe Jesus? Well, he described him as the son of God, but he also described him as being equal with God on many occasions, like in the book of Philippians chapter number two, um, and that he was given all worship and glory in the universe that only God would allow himself to receive no other that was given to him. So he did see Jesus as God and proclaim that deity uh, in his letters. And it's indicated in other places like in Romans as well. Um, and I got a feeling there's some middle discussion here that I'm not uh, getting the full story of too, because Slam RN says Jesus didn't write anything, neither did Socrates. Yes. And that's the point. Neither were writing. And that's even what we saw in the last quote there when um, he talked about Socrates lives on through Plato, because you don't have Socrates apart from Plato. Um, and it looks like Slam RN you jumped in and tried to answer some of this. Dustin, we were talking about whether uh, existed as a person at all or was a total mythological figure. Yeah, so there's a theological argument to this, Dustin, that we're uh, maybe for another time. In fact, if you would like, uh, go watch and, and Slam, maybe you can put this in the comments. There's a couple of videos that Samuel has done on his program, which is typically on Wednesday or Thursday called Theos. And he has done numerous uh, videos so far on the his on the historical Jesus being God uh, and equal to God and claims of God, though yet still being unique and distinct from God in his uh, sonship as the son of God. Uh, and so maybe we can put that in the uh, comments as well. There's a couple of links you can go to, uh, uh, Dustin, if you'd like to get more on that. But today, particularly, we're not focusing on his deity. Although, again, as I stated, Paul had no problem proclaiming him that uh, as being equal to God in Philippians, as well as being the creator of all things and sustaining all things in the sovereign power and control in Colossians 1. Um, so, yeah, good discussion down there. Um, and what we're finding as well as you guys are answering them before I did great job on that. Uh, finding truth says, uh, actually that's a hundred percent relevant when it comes to the question of the existence of Jesus. It does, uh, in that sense. And, and there's more discussion that goes on. It seems like you guys went back and forth for a while. Goodness. <laughs> Tyler coming in saying, explain international. Why do you think the Jesus Smith model is so popular on the common level? Why refuse he existed at all? I think it's a couple things. I think, People are misled um, with the data. I do not believe that those that are starting this are intellectually dumb at all. I don't. In fact, I, I, it disappoints the, I get disappointed that these guys are so intelligent that they make this many mistakes in their criteria of a historical figure. Because if we apply these same principles to any historical figure, I just use Socrates as an example because there's so many similarities. 
But we have to get rid of most people in history because we don't have half a fraction of what we have of Jesus of Nazareth on other historical figures. Not even close. This is what's incredible about Jesus. We have multiple documents, multiple manuscripts, multiple eyewitness testimonies, multiple fathers, multiple second generation sources. We have a plethora amount of of items that confirm his existence, his teachings, his sayings, his death, his resurrection. And even with Socrates, it's minor in comparison to what we have of Jesus. It's quite incredible. So a second thing is, and I know this sounds bad, and I'm not saying this is true of all of them, so hear me carefully. I think people just don't want him to exist. Now, I hate to be that guy that says it, but I think that some of us in this audience that are watching this would think that as well. I just believe there are people that don't want him to exist. Because if he existed, and he truly was a historical figure, and he said what he said, we got we to gotta do something with his teachings. If it's a mythological being, then his teachings are relevant. But if what he said came from a human body, a human mouth that was written by hearers of him, then we got to do something with what he said because he made a lot of claims. If he truly could be testified as not only dead, but risen from the dead, now we really have to do something with this Jesus. But if we can just deny him altogether, life's easier, right? We don't have to deal with him as much. And it looks like you guys are chatting a little bit more in the comments about the pre-existence of Jesus. Again, Slam, um, I would uh, encourage you uh, to put quite a bit of um, Samuel's material in here so that he can watch some of our work that we've done and explain on this very subject. Um, but uh, good discussions. Uh yeah, Nick says those who deny the existence of Jesus are radical skeptics. No doubt. Yeah, it's an extreme view. And, and it would be just as extreme for somebody to come and say, Socrates didn't exist. It'd be just as extreme. So we don't want to go that far. We don't want to live in that world because we've got to do a lot of denying of a lot of historical figures outside of Jesus and Socrates. We've got to go down the line, start eliminating people left and right. All right, so we're going to wrap it up right here. Thank you for joining us this evening. Again, we took kind of a left turn and left the path for a little bit. We're going to come back to the Gnostic Gospels. This was kind of a, a last-minute special that we brought in. Uh, thank you, Slam, for putting uh, those uh, YouTube videos there. We can also post them after this is over. Uh, but thank you for joining us and, and, and tuning in. Make sure you like and subscribe. Uh, make sure you hit the like button and the subscribe button and you get to follow many other videos and programs like Theos and Old Testament conundrums and Finding Truth, Santi bringing in really awesome scholars and good interviews and discussions um, on a multitude of subjects, doing a really good job there. We have really good material. Our apprentices are writing pretty regularly. We have articles. We've got two new blogs coming out. I'm really excited about Eric Wentz. Uh, sent me his final draft just an hour ago, maybe an hour and a half ago. I've got his final draft on another article on Mormonism and the Latter-day Saints. And then Tyler Steinman, uh, a really sharp upcoming guy. We're really excited about him. Sent me an article on did Ignatius believe in the Trinity? 
did Ignatius indicate he believed in the Trinity by his writings? And I am really excited because I've got a, I've already had an opportunity to read it and got an early shot at that. So um, again, thank you for joining us. Uh, please leave your feedback and comments. I uh, will try to get back to him as soon as we can. We trust you have a good rest of the week and the Lord will bless you. Grace and peace to you.